podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. It's the two Simons here. And this week we're talking money, 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 because all the world's best players have been glued to their computers or their phones over the previous weekend looking at the IPL auction to see how much, well, particularly how much they've gone for, but also how much a few of their mates have gone for as well, and been some astonishing sums. So we're going to talk to someone from the inside of the IPL auction, a man who was bidding on behalf of one of the teams back into the IPL in April, Rajasthan Royals, and hear why they bid for certain players, like Ben Stokes, for instance. How much did you go for? Well, actually, people did ask me on Twitter, how much would I have gone for? And I said, well, in uh, 1986, in, well, what could be termed my prime, I might have gone for about 200 grand, possibly, possibly. But I think, you know, five years after that, it would have been 50p, or maybe I might have even been paying them. OK, we're going to look at the IPL in the first half of this podcast. In the second half of this podcast, we're going to talk about the One Day International Series in Australia and England pulling off a really, really fine victory in that fifth match. They looked finished in that game, but they came back with their second string pace bowling attack to win the match. Which was great to see, actually. And we can talk about, about Tom Curran in particular, who was obviously the star of the day in that last game. But actually, uh, in a funny sort of way... He'll have mixed feelings because he was brilliant for England, but he could have had an IPL contract himself, but for him being called into the one-day squad at the last minute and Joffre Archer replacing him in the big bash. And Joffre Archer, the young Sussex fast bowler, has now got a very nice IPL contract. We'll talk about that later. He has indeed. But before that, we are going to talk about Jadev Underkat. Now, has anybody ever heard of Jadev Unad Kat. He is a little-known Indian cricketer, apart from, obviously, people in Indian circles or people who followed the IPO who would have seen him perform. But he went for a mind-boggling $1.8 million to Rajasthan Royals. He's the most expensive Indian cricketer in the auction. Kohli actually went for 2.6, but he was already bought by his uh, franchise, the Royal Challengers Bangalore, before the auction. So... Unad Kat is the most expensive Indian player in the auction, and who's heard of him? And yet, his key reason why he was picked will be explained here by the man who bought him, Zubin Barucha, who was a former Indian first-class player and is now the team analyst with the Rajasthan Royals. We're looking for a left-arm seamer. Uh, we were down to... He was the last seamer in the auction. We were sitting on money. We needed a player. Uh, to fill our 11, to, and, and, and that was the player. My role is to effectively get the best guy to deliver the best job in that seeming role up front at the death, and, 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 and an Indian. So we looked at various other people who could do that role. We definitely thought he was the right guy to do it. He's left-handed, he's got a bag of tricks, uh, he's got different types of slow ones. It's just the function of the room and the option, which is... Two other people in the same room looked at it in exactly the same way. And that's generally when the price goes up. Well, there's the explanation. Clearly, lots of the franchises wanted him. They saw his value. They saw his potential. He hasn't played a huge amount of international cricket. He's back in India's T20 squad. He plays one test match. 
2010. He went from naught for 101 in that game against South Africa. But they do their research these days, and he, he played in the IPL final last year, took two for 19. Ultimately, his team didn't win. They lost by one run to Mumbai Indians. But, but clearly, he was a sought-after player. Well, it's all about the beginning and the end of innings at the moment in the IPL and in T20s generally because the first six overs are the time when you can really go for it and obviously there's only two boundary fielders out there and also the ball is nice and hard and bouncy and that's when the batsman can really get underneath the ball and hit those sixes. It's all about how you bat and bowl in those first six overs and obviously the death overs at the end and so a great big premium is placed on batsmen who can destroy the bowlers beginning and end of the innings, and bowlers, you can stop them doing that, which is why someone like Lassith Malinga in the past has been a very, very sought-after player. And this is why Unad Kat is so valuable, because firstly, he can swing the ball at the beginning of the innings, and his left arm as well, which is just something that batsmen don't like as much. The stats say that generally left-arm over bowlers are harder to slog to leg, therefore harder to score off, than any other kind of bowler. And the angle just makes them more difficult to, to score off generally if they're any good. And then obviously he, he's got these variations that he can produce at the end of the innings. He got Puno Supergiants to the final last year and he's a, a very calm operator, not particularly quick, but with good changes of pace. The left arm option as well. And there aren't that many players who fit that bill. Obviously Mitchell Start will be one and the, the franchises were cl- clearly after him. But players like... James Faulkner is one, Mitchell McLennigan is another. They are good bowlers, but have, have sort of got their gloss has, has, has slightly dimmed. A- another example, interesting story really, is, is Tim Al Mills, who went for a huge sum last year to Royal Challengers Bangalore and did OK. But suddenly his, his star has completely faded. He didn't do very well in the Big Bash and he hasn't got a, a, a gig at all in the IPL. Someone whose star has not faded, Ben Stokes. Well... It seems to have glowed more and more brightly, even though he hasn't actually played, because uh, there was a clamour to to get him in the IPL auction. And it's not just about the the skill, of course, that that he has, the all-round skill, although he was most valuable player in last year's IPL, but it's also, as Zubin explains, about the flexibility that he gives the owners. He doesn't have a backup uh, in world cricket. And, uh, and and hence that just by by default makes him the best player player in the world uh, from an from a T20 perspective who you know gives you the ability to bowl wherever you want him to bowl and, and bat wherever you want him to bat. Uh, so incredibly incredibly valuable tool to have in your side. He's so good for England not because he's winning you every game, but was what happening to what the kind of combinations you can play around him, which allows you to sort of win more. Uh, so only, you know, percent, you know, percentage chance of winning increases with him in the side only because he brings, brings such great balance to the side that you can play any combination you can want. We, you know, we can play two leg spinners, we, you know, we, can, we can push the boundaries in that way. Um, and that's what he affords you to do. I'm sure he'll win you a few games on his own, but that's not the objective. The objective is to build the side around him and support him. Uh, and then th- I think that was, that's what makes a winning unit. So, uh, you know, the, I would say the similar thing with England is just having him, uh, having him there allows you to build, you know, a great amount of flexibility around him to play the kind of game which will give you a higher percentage chance of winning. I think that's a really interesting point that he makes because I think England missed that 
so much during the Ashes. You, you talk about Stokes as a batsman, as a bowler, as a fielder. It's also the balance that he, he gives to the side as well. And, of course, that, that thrust, that dynamism out in the field. He's, he's aggressive. He makes things happen in the field. I think England missed that desperately in the Ashes. That's almost that, that five-fold element that he, that he brings to an England side or any team in which he plays. And it's, and it's also just that, that intimidatory kind of presence as well that... The, you know, bowlers are slightly scared of, of, of bowling to him. And actually, he's a thinking cricketer too, because if you think back to the summer last year, when England was struggling against players like Vernon Philander bowling for South Africa, and he was bowling that nagging length, and batsmen were sort of stuck on the crease and nicking him to slip and so on. Stokes was the only batsman who decided to bat out of his crease and come at the bowler a bit, and it, it worked. And he then scored a brilliant hundred at the oval and other England players followed suit he's very much a leader it's funnily enough I, I, I was thinking about this that the, the most successful captains England have had have had players who are sort of warriors uh, that aren't particularly good maybe as man managers and therefore not particularly good as captains but they are warriors on the field and if you think back to, to Mike Brearley he had Ian Botham Michael Vaughan had Andrew Flintoff Strauss had a bit of Flintoff and a bit of Peterson, who really strode out there and took the attack to, to the other team. And Root would have had Stokes in the Ashes, but of course he was deprived it. So in a way, Stokes is a, has been a massive loss to England all winter, not just for his playing ability, but just for the presence and the flexibility that he gives, which the Rajasthan Laws have recognised. They've also picked up Darcy Short as well, who's an Australian. English viewers, listeners probably won't have seen or heard too much of him unless you've watched the, the Big Bash. I've actually saw him play for Tasmania, made a 90-odd in the game against Sydney Thunder. Well, he's been picked up by Rajasthan as well. Interesting, they, what they were saying about him is that they, the reason they got him, they see him as, as a player for the future, but they see him as someone who can score quickly right at the start of the innings. And actually they said they're probably going to play him at home and not away, or at home at the start and not away at the start until he gets used to Indian pitches. And this is the thing that I find interesting about the, the IPL, both the auction and the tournament itself, is there's a lot of very careful thought and calculation. In fact, the Royals, who've come back this year after a two-year exile, also Chennai Super Kings the same, and they're back this year as well in the 11th edition of the IPL. But the Royals in the past were always known as the sort of moneyball team who took a lot of care and, and went into real detail about players and how valuable they could be in different circumstances, different grounds, as you say, playing some guys at home but not necessarily away. And they've picked up, they've plucked out spinners from nowhere. They actually played a guy a couple of years ago from the, the Bombay T20, the Mumbai T20 tournament, who'd never played even for his state side. And he was a 41-year-old leggy who actually bowled pretty well in, in the IPL. And now they've, they've got a couple of young all-rounders who are completely unheard of, so 18-, 19-year-olds who bowl spin. There's going to be a huge premium on spin in the IPL because you do get these wickets that, that, that tend to turn, certainly later on in the tournament. But the detail that these guys go into is what makes it, I think, fascinating. It's one of those tournaments that if you don't really look at it too much, it sort of passes you by a bit. But the more you delve into it, the more intriguing it becomes. And stats are becoming a, a huge part of it now because you can't just look at a bowler's analysis or a batsman's runs. You have to look much deeper than that. How many boundaries do they hit, when they hit them, that sort of thing. The other thing that the bidders have had to consider is that they're buying these players for three years. 
And so while you obviously want to get players at the top of their game, you're also thinking ahead. Players you can build on, you can develop, who might be extremely good in two or three years' time. So there's an element of, of hunch, there's an element of gambling, actually, in the auction. And one of the players that, that really that applies to is Jofra Archer, who the Royals have also bought for a pretty astonishing sum of around about 800000 I mean, a fantastic amount of money for a, a young player to be able to, to take home. They were very intent on getting him because they've got massively high hopes for him, as, as many people have in the world. If we're thinking of a backup for Ben Stokes in a few years' time, we're thinking that could be Jofra Archer. So that's how we are viewing Jofra Archer, and that's how we sort of valued him uh, in, in, into our squad this year. Was we, we were looking at him as a pure depth holder, but with the view that he could potentially become the next Ben Stokes. Similarly with uh, Chris Morris, when we had him with us in, I think, 2014, when we bought him, he wasn't much of a bat. You know, he could hit the odd ball. But by the time 2016 came along, he was a gun bat and obviously a gun bowler. So there was a period of maturity and a bit of evolve. You know, his batting evolves over that period. And we see the same with Archer. We see that his batting can evolve uh, into something better than just a number nine or eight. We think he could end up becoming a number seven. And, uh, and certainly even six, uh, you know, take up, like I said, take on a Ben Stokes kind of role. We feel eventually over time he'll do that. I mean, in a way, Archer is the sort of the the ultimate modern cricketer, isn't he? Because he's come to the UK looking to make his fortune here, really, and, and play for England. He's, he's essentially West Indian. He does have an English parent, but he's essentially, his, his background is West Indian. The other aspect, of course, to all this is he's been picked up by the IPL. He's been playing Big Bash. He's going to play in the Pakistan Super League time in England, and if he's playing abroad in all these leagues, it may be that he's not going to be able to do so. It's a problem because he doesn't qualify for England until 2022 at the earliest, and as you say, he's got to spend 250-odd days or something a year in England as well every year. So it's it's going to be a bit of a problem. I'm, I'm sure the West Indies are going to be pretty keen to try and get their claws into him as soon as they can, which is they're probably doing now, actually, because he's an invaluable cricketer. He's just someone who... Why is he so good? Well, I think he's got natural lithe pace. He seems to have the ability, a bit like Rabada of South Africa, to glide to the wicket and produce a, a quicker ball than you actually expect. What, strong shoulders, you're it's, saying? It's a lot of it is from the shoulder. He, he, he just trots in almost, and then it, it comes down like a slingshot. Not not like Jeff Thompson in, in the 1970s, but it, there's a lot of shoulder in it. And and he's a he's a very lithe fielder. He's a, a big mate of Chris Jordan's, and there's a, a certain kind of comparison, sort of parallel with the the two of them because they're both naturally good athletes, brilliant fielders. Archer's taken a couple of astonishing catches, one amazing run out where he he fell over and stopped the ball, and he's followed through and sort of turned in one motion and threw down the stumps. So he's just a very exciting cricketer. He can bat as well. He can certainly tonk it. We well, have that's seen... the point, isn't it? That's what they're talking about. Ben Stokes, the possibility of becoming another Ben Stokes. Yeah. High, high praise from, from Zubin, actually, that he could become like that. But that's why everyone's getting so excited about him. One other thing about the, the IPL auction, which has been interesting, is, is to see the, the spinners and, and bowlers that have come from the non-test playing countries, although Afghanistan are now, now is a test playing country, but haven't played a test match yet. Uh, a couple of people from there and one from Nepal who's been signed. And one of these bowlers is only 16. 
There's been some fantastic punts by by these bidders in this auction process, which which sounds like a a real sort of nest of vipers, sort of skullduggery going on. They're all trying to tempt each other into bidding and trying to cover up their tracks a bit. And there's there's a lot of real strategy in this auction, which they practice for several weeks before with mock auctions. I bet it's a fascinating process, and it's made some of these players rich men overnight. Is it a circus, the whole thing? Well, I mean, if you go to an IPL game, it does feel a bit like going to the circus because there's so much razzmatazz around the actual match. There's dancers, singers, motorbike outriders doing somersaults, lots of kind of colour and flamboyance and fireworks. And it, it is a very exciting event. And I think that's why it works, because it's an event, not just a cricket match. I have the feeling that you know, when you go to watch any sport, the most important thing about it is... Do you care who wins? Do you care who wins when you go to an IPL match? Do the, do the supporters who go, do they care who wins? Well, I think the supporters do. And I think India is a unique case because it's such a big country and most of these teams are regional teams. They have, like the Rajasthan Royals, for instance, you know, have a huge state which draws people's interest from all over the state. And uh, it, it, it does, I think sort of segregate the country into teams. but so, so therefore, people do care who wins that. But I think for many of these other T20s... Well, you went to the Big Bash, and what, what, what did you think? Well, my impression was... I mean, I went to two games when I was in Australia, one under the roof in Melbourne, which I thought was great, because what, what it meant was you went along, you knew that you're going to watch the full 40 overs. There was going to be no intervention by the weather. I mean, you could argue that in Australia you don't get much intervention by the weather in any case over here you'd love to i think to have a ground where there was a roof on it so you, when you went along you definitely knew you were going to get the full 40 overs or 100 overs or you know it's a test match the full five days i think that's the next way to go actually is to have some sort of a roof over ground i really do i think that would be that would advance the game enormously over here the other game i went to was a sydney thunder home match against hobart hurricanes in which uh, mills was playing in which darcy short was playing which butler made some runs as well and I thought the atmosphere was it was a bit like the home side lost Sydney Thunder lost and everyone went home they sort of shrugged their shoulders really no one seemed to worry that much but there was a, there were a lot of youngsters there which I thought was fantastic for the future of the game and it must be that must be the aim and it is the aim of course of the T20 tournament that's coming into England in 2020 I did have that sort of sense in which it was a bit like I don't know eating a a hamburger rather than going for a, a really the, delicious it's the, meal. It's the taste, isn't it? That, that It's a bit like, it is like fast food. You know, it gives you a, an instant hit and it's exciting while you're there and then you can be hungry a bit later and then you sort of have forgotten that meal soon after. It's not like the memory of a test match where, you know, you do watch the game ebb and flow and un- unfold over several days a bit like a, a very, very intricate four-course meal when you take your wife out on Valentine's night. I hope you are. <laughs> uh, to be decided. Anyway, the, the point is, I think, as well about T20, is don't play too much of it. Make it special. If you just keep playing and playing and playing, then it really does lose its intensity. And I think less is more when it comes to T20. Anyway, after the break, we're going to look at England's one-day fortunes, which definitely seem to be on the way up after a sensational 4-1 victory in Australia. Welcome back. Let's focus on England's one-day fortunes. Now, I must say, watching, following that fifth one-day international 
between England and Australia in Perth. I thought England were done in that game. Australia looked to be certain victors, and then incredibly, England got themselves back in the game. Current swung the ball, picked up five wickets. And so did David Willey, actually. I know he didn't get the wickets, but he swung the ball as well. I, I've read that Chris Silverwood, the, the new England bowling coach, has helped David Willey get his swing back. And you don't very often see a white ball no. swing. Uh, so, so that was a, a surprising thing. And maybe that's what partly surprised Australia. How did they, they, they do it then? How did they do well, it? I don't know. Uh, but the, the records apparently from the uh, couple of practice games they've played in that new stadium in Perth came back with that the ball was getting quite scuffed. And that's the thing. If you do get a, a pitch, a, an abrasive pitch, the Kookaburra ball does scuff up nicely and does reverse swing. But England's exploitation of it was really good, especially Tom Curran, who, who just, he, he looks like a, a star, doesn't he? He looks like someone who's got the self-belief. He looks like he's got that winning uh, hunger, that ruthlessness, the, the, the drive to really want to, to star. He wants the ball, doesn't he? Mm. You can see him. And when he got the, a couple of wickets, he was almost saying, that's why I wanted the ball. You know, he was mouthing that to, to Owen Morgan. It must be a, a, a nice cricketer to have in one-day cricket. I mean, you know, people say, well, can he do it in test cricket? He certainly can in England. I think the one issue that he might find is that he doesn't really swing the ball away very much. He, he's he mainly an, an in-swing bowler or in, in angling in to the batsman. And that's been the problem for Stuart Broad recently. He hasn't been able to get the ball to go away from the right-handers. Obviously, Jimmy Anderson can do both. And that would be the thing I think that Tom needs to work on is to make sure he can get the ball to leave the right-hander for test cricket. But one-day cricket, he's an excellent cricketer. The other point as well about a player of that age, and what is he, 22, is that you can make huge improvements between 22 to 23 to 24 to 25. You're not set in stone at 22. Massive improvements can be made quickly. The fascinating thing about him, of course, is that he was actually going to play in the Big Bash and uh, he had a contract, and then he was called into the England squad because of the injuries they, they'd suffered in the tests and obviously the one-day side and Stokes' continued absence. And so Joffre Archer replaced him in the big bash, and it's Joffre Archer who, as we heard in the first half, has had a storming performance in the, in the bash and has got a fantastic IPL contract, and Curran didn't get one. I mean, to some extent, then undermined by his own success. But when you have a day out like that, when you take five against Australia to make it 4-1 in a one-day series, I'm sure that makes up for it. And in the future, there will be opportunities for him. What about England's one-day side as a whole after this series? They're up to third in the world. Are they the third best team in the world at the moment? I think they're the best team in the world. I know they got beaten by India in India. We were at that series just over a year ago. But... Those are specific conditions which are quite hard to play in. I think England, anywhere else, and let's hope that in the 2019 World Cup that the pitches are more typically English rather than dry and, and turning. I think they are the best team in the world. I think they've got the best batsmen. I think they've obliterated Australia and really surprised Australia the way the, the ease with which the, the batsmen have got the, the big scores and chased down targets. They've got so many X factors, haven't they? You know, never mind Jason Roy and uh, Alex Hales and Johnny Bairstow up the top of the order. 
then the brilliance of Root, that, that dynamo in the middle, but someone like Joss Butler coming in, who's a real X factor, and that 100 that he hit was an extraordinary innings. He's got this ability to hit genuine Yorkers for six. And where do you bowl to him? If, if you can't bowl a good Yorker that you know is going to go for only a couple of runs, it doesn't give you too many more options because that's, that, that ball in the end is the, is the default. If you can't contain a batsman any other way, the Yorker is the default. If he hits your Yorkers for six and four and he can hit them both sides of the wicket, it doesn't give you anywhere to go. I know they've tried bouncing him, but you're restricted in the number of bounces that you can bowl, and that can easily go for six as well. So he gives England and you know that that ability to chase virtually anything, and of course Stokes to come back into the side as well. The bowlers have really warmed to the task. I think Mark Wood in the side has been a real plus. Obviously, Chris Wokes has come into his own very well. They've got people queuing up to play. Someone like Sam Billings can't even get in the team. So I think they're very strong and they should win the World Cup in 2019. We've done a little poll on Twitter. Would people on Twitter prefer England to win the Ashes or the World Cup? And a year ago, they said the Ashes. Now they're saying the World Cup. The interesting thing about England's one-day side and test team is in the one-day side, you're right, there's a tremendous amount of competition. That victory against Australia and Perth was won with their second string bowling attack. There was no Plunkett, there was no Wood, there was no Wokes. Look at the test team, it was almost like players are queuing up to get out of it. The one-day side, players mm. are queuing up to get into it. And, and people say, well, why can't England play red ball cricket like they play white ball cricket? You just can't. It, it's just a different game. I think we talked about this a bit last week. And, and England... That they've got so much fearlessness and freedom the way they play a one-day game. You can be a completely abandoned if you know you're only going to bat for 50 overs. You can go for it, can't you? And occasionally you get bowled out, as England were in that, in that fourth match. They were bowled out for under 200. That can go badly wrong occasionally. Isn't, isn't that the worry when we get to a knockout match? When England gets to a knockout match yeah. in the World Cup, you have a day with a bat like that, as indeed they did in, in Cardiff last well, year. Well, of course it's a worry, but you'd rather have... The, the problem of, of, of knowing that these guys can chase down a big score that occasionally they're going to blow up than knowing that they're going to blow up all the time and they can't even really get past 300. But is that the next challenge then for the England side? And perhaps they did answer it to some extent in, in Australia, is to adjust your game. It's not to go bang, bang, bang the whole time. It's sometimes you do it, just have to sit in. Yeah, I think it, it, in a way it's the, the, the top three... It's a very important responsibility, not only to get the team off to a, a proper start, but also to understand the conditions and to really assess the conditions early on. Because they're out in the middle, they're feeling how the ball is coming off the pitch, whether it's bouncing, how quickly it's coming onto the bat. And they can, you know, the more they play, the more those three play one day internationals, the more they play around the world, the more they'll get better, hopefully at really assessing the conditions and realising what is a good score, what kind of shots you shouldn't be playing on this pitch and what kind of shots you should. And so the responsibility is Jason Roy, Alex Hales, Johnny Bairstow, that those three guys who've all been around the traps enough now to be able to understand you know, how to play on, on, on different surfaces. Well, England now moving on to a T20 series involving New Zealand and Australia, and then a one-day series against New Zealand. New Zealand have gone pretty well this winter in, in home conditions against, well, Pakistan, who won the Champions Trophy, and West Indies as well. That'll be another interesting test for, for England, see how well they can get on in New Zealand. And then 
We've got an Indian summer coming up. Well, Pakistan and then an Indian summer. India just finished their test series against South Africa. Three very sporty pitches. Um, what are we going to see, I wonder, in the summer in England? Are England going to go that way? Are they going to pl- you know, prepare flat pitches? Or are we going to see green seamers and say, well, hold on a second, we played on spinning, slow spinning pitches out in India. You're going to have some of your own, our own, you know, your own medicine. We're going to play on some green seamers over here. That's to be decided, and we'll, we'll see that in the future. India, they did okay in, in South Africa. In, in a way, they fought back to win that last test match on what was, goodness me, a sporty pitch. I and mean, they talked about calling it off after three days. South Africa threatened to win, produce a remarkable victory on, on what turned out to be the final day at the Wanderers. But I have to say, I was watching it. They got to about 90 for one. I still thought, you know, one out here, it's going to be five out and, and India going to win the game. They've got a very good bowling attack, India, now. They proved that with that, that win. That they've got four really good seamers and one or two can't even get in the side as well. I think actually bringing um, Jasper Bumrah into the, the test seam has been it's a slight risk in a way, but he's he's a, an X factor. He's a bit of an unpredictable bowler. He's quite hard to pick up. He's deceptive. And I, my actually my favourite bowler in that side is Mohammed Shami, who mm. is much quicker than people think. He's another one who glides to the crease. Doesn't look as if there's all that much of him. He's not particularly tall or particularly strong looking, but he whips it down and he hits the seam and he swings it both ways and he's quite aggressive. He bowls a very good bouncer. So him and then Bhuvaneshwar Kumar, who's added a bit of pace to his natural swing he's the sort of poor man's Jimmy Anderson in the Indian side not that poor either those Indian fans would be up in arms saying well he's a he's a very good bowler he is a very good bowler and then they've got Ishan Sharma as well so you know they, they've got a good four-pronged attack they didn't even rely on the spinners in, the, in this no, series no. so you know they they that that for them they'll be confident coming to England that England can't just go for the green seamers because they've got an attack to exploit it. Yeah, and it'll be fascinating to see how their batsmen get on against England's bowlers. If England do produce those green tops, how they get on against the likes of, of Anderson. Didn't work for them last time. England were able to subdue them, although they did produce that remarkable green top at Laws, and India won there. Yeah, and they, they won actually by bowling bouncers, didn't they? They bounced a few of the England players out that day, but... I, I think the Indians are a bit smarter now, and I think yeah. batting-wise, and Kohli will be driven to not only prove that he can bat in English conditions, but also to try and protect India's number one status, which they've just about managed to maintain despite losing to South Africa. Anyway, first things first, on to T20. We started talking about T20 today and the IPL. I'd just like to see Owen Morgan make a few runs, actually, because he hasn't done that well in the ODIs. Very, very important man for England and for their ODI future because he's such a clever captain and he definitely twisted and manipulated some of those games very cleverly. But I think just for his own self-respect, he needs a few runs. Is he the Mike Brearley of the one-day side? Do you know, he actually, he listened to our podcast that we did with Mike Brearley and he found it really fascinating. And he said, I, give me his email address. I want to go and talk to him and get some, some ideas. Maybe he's been and spoken to him between the, the time that podcast came out and, and going on tour. Very clever, very smart captain. I just hope he gets some runs because he's, he's important for England's cause. OK, that's it for this week. Goodbye for now. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.